and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. And what a big week it's been, especially in politics, with Bill Shorten's new franking credits policy. So we check in with Andrew Probert, political editor at the ABC, who runs me through the week's political news and what's been going on with Bill Shorten. Michael McCarthy, chief market strategist at CMC Markets, fills us in on the markets, what's going on there. Ricky Pologinus, head of Australian economics at NAB, tells me how the economy's going and they've just recently put out a really strong business confidence survey, which is the strongest it's been well, since 1994. And finally, John Lord, chairman of Huawei in Australia, fills me in on the fight for 5G and whether it's going to knock off NBN and also whether Huawei can overcome all the securities concerns that have been going on for about six years since they were banned from participating in the NBN. Joining me now is Andrew Proben, the political editor at the ABC. Andrew, the government must be pretty pleased that Bill Shorten's put his head up and given away the small target strategy for a moment with the, um, uh, with the franking credits announcement. How's that going? Well, it's certainly a courageous move uh, in the uh, Sir Humphrey sense. Uh, this is causing some um, concern, uh, albeit pretty small at this stage inside the Labor Party, that that perhaps uh, uh, the natural advantage, advantage they've got in, in the current um, atmosphere, um, political atmosphere, is imperiled by, by this, this move. Um, and for the first time in a long time, the Labor Party seems to be um, more on the back foot than the front foot. Um, it's had to uh, confirm that there are 200,000 part pensioners and 14,000 full pensioners who are affected um, by this move to uh, remove the cash back on, on dividend implication. And uh, and that does have them... Um, not, I wouldn't say scrambling at this stage, but it does have them uh, more on the defensive. Do you think it's a mistake? I mean, they, um, uh, they've they been pretty good, haven't they? They haven't made many mistakes up until now. Uh, look, I, it, well, politically, as I said before, I think it, it's it's very courageous. It, it's a move that um, uh, clearly they've, uh, they've calculated. Uh, it's not the sort of move that you would want to make in a five-week election campaign. Because if you if you go into a campaign 52-48, either ahead or behind, this this sort of thing can um, really uh, make the difference. So if they are planning to do this, and it it sounds like they are planning to do it, albeit within another a bigger uh, and broader tax reform plan, um, then they want to get it out early so that uh, the heat is, is taken out of it. Um, that said, the, the, there is more time for a campaign, scare campaign or otherwise, to, to be launched against it. And you have a government that is in a situation, and a prime minister in particular, who wants to use this uh, as, as a sword. Uh, against Bill Shorten. He is on 28 consecutive negative news polls. He's got two more uh, negative news polls to meet and match Tony Abbott's record. So he'll be doing what he can to uh, to fire this um, uh, in a damaging way back at Bill Shorten. And that's the, that's the political risk for 
for Bill Shorten, but it's also a suddenly a, a, a political opportunity for Malcolm Turnbull. That said, the coalition has not been very good at using its political opportunities in recent months, and uh, uh, it, it has been written in certain places that this is a golden opportunity for Malcolm Turnbull. Well, in fact, it gives him a chance to um, uh, to be uh, come out in favour of the battlers, which is um, which is a bit of a, a bonus for him, isn't it? Well, the definition of battlers is is one that's uh, most um, sort of curious in this sense. Uh, you you have got uh, the prime minister this week has been talking about um, those who who do uh, receive this um, uh, this cash back, but Labor contends that some of these so-called battlers actually have in, um, substantial sums behind them um, with their super nest eggs. It's just that they're, they're considered battlers in, by the Prime Minister because their taxable income is kept low. And this goes to the, to the heart of the, uh, the sort of actuarial criticism, I think, of, of this policy, that, um, that it's going to be the, the rich uh, who are going to be able to shuffle their... their tax affairs to make the most of dividend imputation, where it's the those on the lower end who won't be able to do that. And so the initial or, or original target that Labor has in mind uh, might be the ones who can simply avoid it. And any, any tax change does see behavioural change uh, to lessen um, uh, tax liability. Just finally, the other thing that's been tying Bill Shorten up in some knots lately has been the Adani mine, um, particularly in relation to the Batman by-election um, coming up, I think, this weekend. So uh, where where do things stand now? Do you think uh, everyone understands where Bill Shorten stands on that or not? Uh, no, not in, not entirely. Um, and w- within the Labor Party, there has been some concern. Some people are, simply aren't comfortable in the, the way that it's landed. Um, there are, there's the view that the that Anastasia um, uh, Palaszczuk's uh, the, the way that she landed on this on this uh, this policy that they would not throw any taxpayers' money at the the project. And but would support it if it passed all the environmental and, and economic um, uh, hurdles. Uh, that that was the, the the view was that that in some circles that that was the right uh, policy and a, a policy approach to be taking. That the Labor Party didn't want to be see, seen as you know overtly supportive, but nor did it want to be the one that uh, brought the project to its knees. So for Mr. Shorten to come out and say that he didn't support um, the mine, which he did last week, um, actually went further, much further than uh, than the, the previous policy did. And I suppose when the Batman by-election um, gets washed through the system and, say, Labor gets uh, across the line, um, which is uh, possible, and some people in the Labour Party are hopeful that that is the case, if if not um, confident, um, then uh, the the temptation for Bill Shorten will be that uh, to think that his his position on Adani is, is validated. Um, then again, the other complication in this uh, in this fight is that the Liberal Party is not running; it is between the Labour Party. And the Greens and the the Greens have um, proven themselves to be, um, you know, uh, equally spiteful internally as any other um, political party. Uh, Alex Patel 
the candidate has faced a, a rather fierce battle, internal battle from certain sectors of the Greens, and, and that's damaged her campaign, uh, much to the frustration of Richard Inatale and other um, members of the Green Executive. I'm joined now by Michael McCarthy, who's the Chief Market Strategist for CMC Markets Australia. Michael, um, I think there might have been some expectation that the uh, tariff announcement, steel tariffs in the US, might, you know, and the prospect of a trade war might have mucked the markets around, and there was a bit of ups and downs. But basically, the markets have had a quiet week. Um, how do you think? Uh, how do you think they stand? Well, poised at the moment, Alan. It's a, a difficult time. Uh, we are hearing reports out of the US that there are further tariffs being prepared, and in particular sanctions against China over their use of US intellectual property. And if that is the case, we could see a much more severe market reaction than we've seen this week. And you're absolutely right. While, while markets have been fairly quiet, the US market has actually fallen for the last three sessions in a row, and that's a marked contrast to the steady climb that we've seen uh, for some time now in the US. So there does appear to be a bit of investor caution. We've certainly seen bond markets reflect that, with growth expectations obviously lower as those yields on bonds drop. Uh, but uh, given that we've also seen some positive news out of China this week, particularly on industrial production, that's brought in some support for commodities. So for Australian investors, there have been conflicting currents in the market and the overall impact has been fairly muted. But uh, the greatest worry facing the markets at the moment is that potential for a trade war escalation, although uh, the adjustment that's been made so far has been judged enough until we see any further developments. I guess the thing that's been uh, obviously moving markets mostly over the past few years has been the Fed. What um, what are the views about uh, interest rates now in the markets for 2018 in the US? Well, looking first to the um, US interest rate markets, they're implying that next week we'll certainly see a lift from the, the Fed of a quarter percent. And over the course of this year, uh, on the balance of probabilities, we'll see a total of four rate rises. So... Um, that, that is the adjustment that was made after the surprise on wage data in February. Uh, and at this stage, the market appears to be sticking to that pricing, somewhere between three and four rate hikes this year. And while uh, the markets and, and particularly equity investors uh, are aware of that and, and that expectation remains the same, it shouldn't be as disruptive an event as, it, as we found in, in early February. Not if it's fully expected, I guess. Well, that's right. In. The Fed message... Fed messaging has been very strong around this. Uh, it's only when we see a shift, as we did after that way, just data that we get an equity market reaction. But as we saw, that uh, four, almost 15% fall in, in US equities indicates that changing interest rate expectations are still a key driver for uh, for share markets. It's interesting. Um, I don't know whether you follow the chart too much, but there's a little bit of talk uh, in February of uh, a double top um, and... Uh, you know, the sort of the, the fabled double top correction that came, but it didn't happen. The market actually has uh, regained the second top. Um, uh, as you say, it's fallen in the last three sessions, but not, not terribly much. No. Uh, although has, um, I do follow the charts, and so uh, I actually published a note yesterday on the technical aspects of it um, in that we do appear to have a potential second double top uh, just below the 2800 level and the falling away that we've seen from that 
point has given us a candlestick formation that, that's a known reversal pattern. Um, and we've also seen a breach and reversion of the Bollinger Bands. So we've got at least three technical factors pointing to further short-term downside for the US. Now, whether that turns out to be a significant top or not, none of us can say with certainty, but we're certainly, uh, in the short term at least, looking at technical pressure on the US market. A triple top. <laughs> if we're a little far away from that top that's closer to 2900 to call it a triple top, but I'd certainly like to. <laughs> What's the Bollinger Band? Uh, the Bollinger Band measures price movement in t as compared to average price movement. So the Bollinger Band set at two standard deviations around the average price. And when uh, share market prices get, or any securities prices get above or below that two standard deviation mark, there's a higher possibility that they'll come back towards the average. Right. So with the, um, with, with the uh, S&P 500 piercing the top Bollinger Band and then coming back through it, that's a classic sell signal. And we'd look for a pullback to the average, which currently stands around 27.30 for the S&P 500. 27.30. Oh, that's not too far down. No, no. It's another percent or so. so not, and finally, have you, see, have you seen anyone uh, starting to sell their um, fully franked high-yield dividend stocks? No. <laughs> Not yet, Alan. Um, I, I would point out that this, at this stage it's only an announced policy and there does appear to be some stepping back on it. Um, I think if it were enacted as a policy, we would see uh, over the longer term a shift, in, particularly in asset allocation, uh, particularly in self-managed super funds. But uh, at this stage, no evidence to back that up. I'm joined now by Ricky Polygenis, who's the head of Australian economics for NAB. Oh, Ricky, you put out the uh, NAB business survey this week. What did it show? Look, it's painting a pretty healthy picture of the Australian economy at the moment. We saw business conditions increase to a record high for the monthly survey, up to plus 21 index points. And you actually need to go back to our older uh, quarterly survey to get the same level and it reached that same level in 1994. So it's really a very strong read. And what we saw was that trading conditions, profitability and the employment index, which make up aggregate business conditions, were all strong. So it's painting a picture of quite broad-based strength for the business sector at the moment. We have for a while seen, been seeing a bit of a difference between what you call the soft data, which is the survey stuff like that one you talked about, and the hard data mm -hmm. from the ABS. Is, is that still the case? It is the case to some degree, but I think if you break down the official data a little bit further, you can see that in a trend sense, domestic demand or the domestic parts of economic growth have been trending upwards and improving. And in particular, we have seen an improvement in business investment in the national accounts data. And we're also getting quite a strong contribution from government infrastructure spending, which has flow-on effects to the business sector as well. So, I mean, I think... Part of the difference between our survey measure and the official measure, though, is that the household sector perhaps isn't performing quite as well as the business sector. And for the household sector to increase their spending, we really need to see wages and household income growth pick up more substantially. Yeah, so that brings us to the forward view. Um, the, you put out the, um, 
uh, I think it's a regular thing you put out the forward view for for March. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, on the on the basis of what you've just been talking about, what is your forward view for Australia? Look, we're expecting economic growth to pick up a little bit from here. So full-year economic growth was 2.3% in 2017. We're expecting an improvement to 2.8% in 2018 and then uh, around 2.7% for the couple of years after that. Um, So that's a little bit higher than where we see potential growth for Australia. So that's good news in the sense that we think that spare capacity in the economy will gradually be reduced. Part of the improvement this year, though, is because we've got LNG exports still contributing quite a lot to growth. But as we move uh, into 2019 and 2020, it's the domestic economy which really starts to add more. So you've got further uplift in business investment, government spending, and a very gradual improvement in consumer spending. So we do think that the strength in employment growth at the moment should eventually start to drive wages growth higher. We're not expecting wages growth to pick up uh, to the same rates that we saw pre-GFC, but we are expecting that to gradually improve, which will support uh, the household sector in time and help close this gap between the household sector and the business sector at present. But it's probably going to be a long and gradual process. And what about the forward view for the global economy? The global economy is expected to pick up in 2018 to around uh, 3.8% from 3.6% in 2017. That's largely driven by uh, stronger growth forecast for the United States. We know that the United States um, is already running pretty hot at the moment, but there's going to be further fiscal stimulus coming through, uh, including from defence and non-defence spending in the latest um, announcements from from the government. So, um, and in addition to, of course, um, corporate tax cuts, um, which should be supporting the economy there. So, The US is really gathering ahead of steam and the US Federal Reserve is likely to hike interest rates three times this year with some risk that they might even hike four times. Um, Elsewhere, we're also seeing uh, strength in the European and Japanese economies at the moment, which should continue at least through 2018 um, and beyond. But on the flip side, we're seeing the Chinese economy um, slowing a little bit, but only very gradually. Um, that's still a good news story in the sense that the Chinese economy is very large um, and is still going to be a major trading partner for Australia and support um, our traded industries, not just commodities, but also services export industries such as uh, tourism and education. The main downside, though, from from China is that we do expect construction activity to slow down a little bit and also we think that um, that environmental controls will also suppress steel demand to some degree. So that might uh, lower demand for our iron ore and coal exports. So we think commodity prices might come off a little bit. So while we've got GDP growth in Australia looking quite healthy, um, the terms of trade might be declining and that will weigh on national income growth a little bit. But overall, it's quite a cautiously positive outlook for both Australia and for the globe that we're seeing at the moment.
I'm talking now to John Lord, who's the chairman of Huawei in Australia, the Chinese telecommunications business. And um, uh, they've been battling over the years with the uh, securities organisations, ASIO in Australia and uh, the CIA and so on in the US. And they still are. They are not trusted. Um, but John Lord's point, we're just getting on with business. John, it's six years ago this month that um, it became public that Huawei was banned from ne- uh, tendering for the NBN. Um, you've had some support this uh, recently from Dennis Richardson, uh, formerly of ASIO, saying that uh, Huawei no- needs not to be banned but uh, managed. Um, but things seem to be still tense. I mean, you've just had the situation with um, uh, with Donald Trump uh, blocking the, the big merger of Qualcomm and Broadcom in the US, apparently because of some concerns about Huawei from their securities organization. So how does it seem from your point of view at the moment? Uh, well, Alan, I'll, I'll open up by saying that uh, international politics is for politicians, so I won't comment on that. But uh, yes, yeah, let's just get back. MBM was a long time ago. And uh, th- there's different parts of, of what you say there, and they're quite different business cases. Just briefly, MBM was a long time ago. Um, it came out, we then got on with business, which we said we would do. And to be fair, we've, we, we've done well since then. Uh, Huawei's continued to grow in Australia. We're now out to 700-odd employees, and I think our revenue last year was about $600 million Australian dollars. So, you know, we just got on with business. And as we always said, I think, was that the real business was hanging off the NBN. NBN was just a big pipe, and it's the businesses, and that's where we focus. So listen, the, the, the company's a different company to what it was then and far more engaged in the Australian community. Um, what um, what business is Huawei now in Australia? What what, what is the six hundred million revenue? Where does it come from? What is it? Oh, okay. Well, we're uh, still the major provider to uh, major telcos, Optus, Vodafone, TPG in Australia. We we would still claim that because of that, and this is in wireless, of course, that's our strength. We would claim that in wireless, uh, over fifty percent of Australians probably use a bit of our kit during their day somewhere because of the network setup. Um, so in the wireless sector, you know, we've been huge. The other area is uh, when you and I spoke a long time ago, when we get back to those days, Huawei was not selling any mobile phones in its own name, and uh, we would now be probably just as scraped to be number three uh, in Australia mobile phones. And competing in those days, we had very cheap ones, which were sold under different labels. Uh, we're now selling our own brand, and it's a very competitive uh, at, a, you know, at the top end. So those two parts of the business are growing. The world has changed too, and, and you've hinted at it, talking about the Qualcomm's 5Gs and these types of things, in that the enterprise business, the providing business-to-business connections and all this is now the, the new sector. We're just getting into that now, and that's probably a focus for us in the future, but that's our smallest revenue. No, but I suppose you say that politics is for politicians, and you'll stay out of that, but the, I mean, the fact is that the securities organisations do seem to have concerns about Huawei and, and are standing in your way. Isn't that correct? Well, um, what, what each security organisation actually thinks, we, we never know, of course. We, we get uh, media reports and then media report on media report. Huawei would say that you know, it is no threat to any country. It obeys the rules in every country, which we do. Uh, you know, we would say that we're all in global supply chains now, and and Huawei's uh, you know is is no more a threat than any other provider because we all have global supply chains and uh, and and we meet the rules in every country we operate. So you know we would say here we are, judge us openly. Uh, we're open and transparent. 
And, you know, we're in every country in the world. We're in 170 countries. We're the biggest provider to BT in UK, Deutsche Telekom, Telefonica. Uh, so Huawei is showing around the world that it's got a presence and it's being welcomed. Is there any concern at your end um, about the obviously growing tensions now between China and the US at the at the top level? There's a lot of talk now of um, a lot of uh, trade sanctions coming from the US based on uh, IP issues concerning China. Um, I mean, is that just another thing that you just have to get forget about and get on um, get on with your business? Of course you do. Uh, I mean, as a global corporation, you really uh, just have to play it as yeah you know, as it is. Um, Huawei goes into every country, looks at its rules, talks to the government, and and works within that country's rules. We also now, being a global corporation, work within the overall global framework. We follow all UN directives, we follow all US directives, etc. I, I mean, obviously, no company in the world wants there to be a conflict in trade. They want open trade, and you know, we support that like every other corporation. Um, yes. Well, uh, so so where, I mean, can 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 you comment on what's going on as a former military man? Do you have any views about? Uh, how things are looking now? Alan, uh, I could, but that would be private, and I am have been retired for 17 years, and one thing I hate is uh, very old retired military officers commenting on politics and military. That's matters for current people. Okay. <laughs> now, you're not a technical... Uh, as you pointed out, you're not a technical guy. You're the chairman. Um, um, what, what's the future of Huawei in Australia, do you think? Well, I, I, you know, I think it's uh, very rosy. Uh, I mean, we've got new technologies coming along. Um, Huawei in Australia is going into areas it hasn't been before. It's providing competition. Uh, we're looking at the areas of mining. We're looking at agriculture, which not many of us are in, even our competitors. So that's an exciting new area for Australia. How do we use the new 5G and Internet of Things technologies to expand agriculture, which is going to be so important to Australia in the future? So the opportunities in that enterprise space, I, I just think, are, are very exciting. And, you know, uh, Australia is just at the start, and we're just starting the 5G debate, how we're going to use it now. 5G is not a magical overnight cure. It's going to be uh, evolutionary more than revolutionary. But Australia can use these new technologies to really improve its, you know, it, the, the exports uh, in mining, agriculture, and those areas where where we haven't actually applied some of these technologies before, and, and nor has anyone else in the world. So they're, you know, they're groundbreaking. Do you think that 5G is going to be a problem for the NBN? Uh, no, I listen, uh, once again, not an expert, but uh, all the reading I do, and I listen to experts, and I've just come back from the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, I think uh, 5G is going to be complementary to the NBN. You need a big pipe around Australia uh, that you know, takes most of the data and, and you know, uh, NBN cable arrangements are the best way to do that. Uh, what, what 5G does, it, it, it reduces, the, at the moment we've got 4G out there, as you know, and it's called 4.5G and you add a bit of smart stuff on the end, but it's really a 4G technology. 5G will reduce the latency time, uh, you know, its bandwidth is broader. So you'll be able to do things like um, uh, conduct remote operations. We'll be able to have proper autonomous vehicles, you know, ones that are really autonomous uh, with safety. So these are the impacts that are coming. But this is not going to happen in 2019 when we said all 5G will be here. These are going to be evolutionary. 
Alan, a point which may interest you from the economic side, at, um, at the Mobile World Congress this year, the representative from Deutsche Telekom said, said, we are all struggling to write that first business case that shows the profit arriving from 5G technologies. So that's still got to happen yet for 5G to really be implemented. That's why I say it's evolutionary, not revolutionary. That's very interesting. So they can't, they can't uh, see immediately how the profit's going to work. Wow. That is what Deutsche Telekom told us. It was a great uh, uh, um, session. Uh, they had all the leading players who've done all the uh, all the trials, like South Korean Telecom, uh, Japan Telecom, and and Deutsche Telekom said, "We, the big ISPs in the world, are still looking for that business case to convince the CFO to give us more money to expand our 5G aspirations." Now, 5G will arrive, and we'll all grab our mobile phones. Each isn't that super fast, but that doesn't make you a lot of money. The real business applications that follow from 5G is, is, the, is where the real benefits will come and the money. As an example, a remote operation, a doctor in Melbourne doing an operation in Alice Springs, that's, that's the wonder of 5G. But someone's got to work out how that becomes a business model. So the, the money going into expanding the networks to take 5G on top of 4G, which we've just spent a lot of money on, that's where the, the real trick comes for the, the telcos in the future. Happy birthday to Natkin Cole, who was born on the 17th of March, 1919. And he was... Unforgettable. That's what you are. That's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts by emailing us at hello at I'm Alan Cole. I have a constant week.